Professor Lisa Jackson Pulver is a proud Aboriginal woman with connections to communities in southwestern New South Wales, South Australia, and beyond. She is the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Indigenous Strategy and Services for the University of Sydney and leads the institution's strategy to advance Indigenous participation, engagement, education, and research, including the university's One Sydney, Many People strategy. She is a recognized expert and tireless advocate for health and education. Her research focuses on capacity building for healthcare workers and improved health for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. She is a member of the Australian Statistical Advisory Committee, the Australian Medical Council and the Health Performance Council of South Australia. Lisa Jackson Pulver, welcome to Business and Society and One Planet podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and greetings to everybody. I'm coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation in the city that's today known as Sydney, Australia. Yes. So your work, it's so vast. It's really a life's work. As I look back to your early thesis, you see like the seeds for what you've done now. But just go back a little bit to the beginning of your educational trajectory, what you envisaged and how it's come to light with what Sydney many peoples. My education started, well, 60 years ago, I suppose, when people go to kindergarten and school. And so I left school. I was not a terribly good scholar. I had a pretty rough home life. And I left home at the ripe old age of 14 and ended up becoming a registered nurse through the hospital-based training program of the day. And that was really my first formal education that I not only liked, but of course stuck through to completion. And it was really from my nursing experience, living in a nurse's home, working in a hospital as a pupil nurse, and then eventually as a registered general nurse, we called them sisters in the day, that really piqued my desire to really get what lifelong learning's about. And I committed to doing something to improve my knowledge, improve my ability to do stuff from that point on. And so that then saw me into university and of course popped me on the path that I'm on today. That's the shortest answer I could give you now. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. So if you would just give us a little bit more detail, I remember Ben Franklin 300 years ago when he was in the state of Massachusetts in the East, he had a rough time with his brother when he was in his teens and his brother kind of enslaved him to become a printer. And although that gave him some training, he wanted a new life. So he walked from Massachusetts to Philadelphia and became Ben Franklin. It sounds like when you were 14, you became yourself. Can you mention why you chose to leave home and at first found nursing as a caring profession and answer to your needs? Yeah, that's a really interesting request because look, Bruce, I had no choice but to leave home in that I was grown up as so many are in a really abusive environment. I'm a survivor of child sexual penetration. I'm a survivor of significant violence, as is my mum and sister and brother. And for us, it was, you know, how do we escape? My mother escaped through alcohol. I cannot remember her being sober. And I don't, I know my sister fell pregnant at 14 and had a baby herself. And my brother ended up in trouble with the law. For me, I bolted from home. My father was a veteran of World War II and he was in the Royal Australian Air Force and Part of his service was to stop the Japanese from coming further south. So a lot of his service was over Papua New Guinea. 
And part of his work was to repatriate humans and remains from that space following a number of particularly brutal encounters with the enemy of the day. And so he was a very, very, very damaged man. And in those days, they used to call it shell shock, right? Yes. And veterans were just told to man up, you know, get over it. Everyone has that. Don't be ridiculous. My father, he took it out on his family. And so we lived that that war in all parts of it. And he was a very violent, incredibly cruel man. And at the age of 14, I thought, wow, I've really got two choices here. I either die at his hand, which was you know, quite possible, or I bolt and make it on my own. And I was this skinny little wench of a thing. I wasn't really matured. And so I survived on the streets dressed as a boy. Unbelievable. And I just wanted yeah. students to hear that beginning because of strength and dignity of what they now see here before them, you know, as a major chancellor yeah. and as a major initiator of social change. And But <laughs> it's amazing to think of the word dignity in the sense that part of what propelled <laughs> you must have been a strength of initial character. You talk about the need to leave home and be repelled from that brutal setting. But there's also a, some sort of discovery of the dignity of those who could help you in nursing. My daughter is a doctor, so I think I have a sense of the caring profession. And you started out at nursing somehow? Yeah, it's funny with nursing, you know, like it's a really hard job. You don't really get you don't get paid very well. You work really atrocious hours. You get treated quite badly on the whole. But I absolutely adored it because I loved sitting down with people and holding their hand as they were taking their last. And that was something I found really nice to be able to sing to the dying or to tell the stories or to just be with them and chat, you know, even if they're not conscious anymore. But I think with nursing, it allowed me heal myself through caring for others. And that was a really important step, I think, in my own process of understanding who I am and what I want to do when I grow up. I'm 64 now and I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but I'm well and truly on the path of appreciating just how important it is to be part of a circle of care. And what I mean by that circle of care is that I didn't really experience it in a way that protected me as a kid. The neighbourhood knew what was going on in our house and we were not the only house where that stuff was going on. What our neighbours used to often do is provide protection when things got really, really rough, like hiatus or fetus. And that was good because I saw caring from others, not necessarily in a way that fully protected us, but gave us enough reinforcement to go on. You know, because you know, one, one of our neighbours used to quote the Bible a lot. And one of the quotes I remember was, this too will pass. So it's a really good lesson in life. This too will pass. No matter how awful it is, this will pass. It will come to an end and the next whatever will open. So for me, going into nursing not only proved that I can be a compassionate, caring person, I guess, because that's who I am really. But it also gave me an opportunity of understanding about learning and what you can do to help others and contribute to a greater good. Working as a team, being involved in the care of someone who's really crook and seeing a resolution of that either the end of their lives or, you know, being discharged from hospital. So I think for me, there is an agency in having control over your own learning and really crappy things can happen to you, but it's really about what you can do with those. It's really about recognizing that, you know, there, there is an opportunity in everything. And for me, that opportunity was to escape at 14 
And whilst on the streets, I thought, well, I can either live on the streets and do lots of drugs or become a sex worker. Neither of those things were what I wanted to do. What I really wanted to do was to become a social worker or become a nurse or become someone who could help others out of this. But first I had to lift myself out of this. So really, you know, I, when I look back at my 14-year-old self and my 15-year-old self and 16 and 17-year-old self, I just cannot believe the wisdom I had then. And sometimes I think about things and I wonder, I don't, I'm still not as wise now as I was then in some things. So it's pretty interesting. Well, the ability, I think, Lisa, to control rage of the bad circumstance and to transfer and translate that rage into purpose where you were in a circle of care is fascinating. Can you explain to the audience how that relates to the military? Because I think the Australian context of the military and the sisters will help them understand how you go from 17 into your 20s. Yes. Yeah, so I became a nurse and then I started doing quite a lot of getting involved in the creative world and became a graphic artist, a silkscreen printer, and became very interested in joining the military. And I wanted to become, go into the Air Force like my father. And it was interesting because during those days, my late 20s in particular, I decided that I needed to resolve with my family. I hadn't seen my mother for a long time. I definitely hadn't seen my father for a long time. I knew they divorced eventually. In those days, that someone had to prove cause for divorce, and that was usually infidelity or violence. And so that was proven. And I was seeing a counsellor at the time, and I basically said, I would love to go into aid, you know, United Nations type of work in the military. And I think I need to resolve stuff with my family. Because there's nothing worse than having that unresolved rage and not being able to sit down at a table and talk logically about something that happened in the past if it's burning you up on the inside. So I made contact with my father first and it was probably one of the most bravest things I think I've ever done because the last time I saw him when I was bolting down the street was when he had a shotgun and he fired this shotgun at me and I heard this thing whizzed past my ear and I thought the next shot is going to get me. So I just ran faster and zigzagged up the road and disappeared around the corner. And that was the last time he saw me. He did not remember that he's dead now, but I was a bit frightened about seeing him. So I had a friend posted out the door and, and I met him in a public pace. And, and when I saw him, he was quite a frail, heavily arthritic man who could barely walk and it was sad. So all of my anger and hatred completely dissolved. And I said to him, oh God, you were so strong and violent and frightening. And now I see you as a pathetic old man. And he said, I've always been pathetic. And I thought, yes. wow, that's a conversation. So we just sat down and we talked for hours and it took him about a year before he actually said, sorry. And although all he said was sorry, it was what was in his eyes and what I could see in his body that was truly, truly remorseful. He'd stopped drinking. He'd stopped smoking. He'd become sober. He'd recognized that he lost everything he cared. And a funny way of showing it, he agreed. But yeah, he, uh, it was a good, good thing for me because I had no reason then to hold on to the hatred. You know, I had no reason to hold on to the grief and the anger. I just had to let it go because he'd said sorry. He'd acknowledged what he'd done. 
and said sorry. So that was a big, big deal for me, a real turning point in my life. And it was then he said to me, I'd like to see your mother again. And I thought, oh, okay. And I facilitated that meeting of him with my mother and his other children. It was fascinating because he and my mother, because she'd sobered up too, fell in love again and moved into a house again together. You know, stranger than fiction. Strange violence in our household as kids was revolting, but my father had somehow healed found a decency in his heart and soul and became sober, as did she, and it was remarkable. It's really, well, love is the great healer, and it's so heartwarming to hear how the healer in you then surfaced. I know forgiveness is really hard, but it's we only just, when you look back, you can start to see the intergenerational trauma. And at that time, as you say, like he went through war and the PTSD and the other ways that Indigenous people just suffered in silence and kept it all in and it would have to express itself. But as I recall from that time, people didn't even have words in terms of mental health, but also in any kind of health care. But in terms of mental health, people didn't even like to have words for the trauma, right? Yeah, there was always other excuses for things. And now we've got a, we've got a really good dictionary of language and we have a whole stack of supports and helps. But they never go far enough because family trauma today manifests itself in a multitude of ways from sort of domestic violence all the way through to, you know, people having economic control over your life and control of your movements through tracking devices, control of your children by taking them away and placing them in out-of-home care, control of your freedoms if you, you know, commit fairly minor crimes that many people wouldn't get thrown into prison for that we find masses of Aboriginal children in particular and adults thrown into prison for things that other members of society don't get thrown into prison for. So there's still a significant amount of violence and control that's being exerted unfairly upon large portions of the population at different times. And I think it's really tricky as a society. We have to come to terms with this stuff and learn to go back to first principles and say, is this really what we want in our world? And ask ourselves those terribly hard questions. And I think that's where the power of the academy is, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I went into university. I fell in love with my first job at university in the 90s. I was working part-time while I was doing my master's of public health degree. And I really loved the idea of getting in front of a hundred people and talking to them about public health or epidemiology or demography or biostatistics or whatever, Aboriginal health in my case. And after I got my epidemiology qualifications in about 2002, I went back to the university sector to become a lecturer because I felt the power in being able to help people see the world a little bit differently because in my mind, a lot of the people that were at university were the types of people I went to med school with, people who'd had a really good education, people who had some privilege and people who had an ability to know from a very young age that they wanted to be a doctor, In certainly in the case of the students I went to uni with. So I figured that most public health people are like that too. They've had a really good education. They've been very clear about what they want to do. They come, yeah, the definition of good family is a really interesting thing. That's something I've had to rework over the last few decades, but they all came from good families. Of course, that's abundantly untrue. I am so delighted when I ask a question of people, who's first in family to uni? And, you know, you see all these people whack their heads up, first in family to uni. That says a lot about their family history and that says a lot about that individual being able to make it to university, even though they're the first ones, they're the trailblazers. 
So I really wanted to find a way of being able to influence people and get them to think differently and to get them to be a lot more compassionate and to get them to understand that often the people they'll be serving in their discipline will come from backgrounds vastly different from them. Even though they might look like them or have the same kind of accent, chances are, especially when you're working in some of the areas I have, the background and the lived experience is vastly different and needs to be taken into account in practice. So that's where I really got quite engaged with the academy, wanting to make a difference in a number of ways, not just through my teaching practice and my public health and medicine teaching practice, but also through the other work around finding ways of engaging with Aboriginal communities and people from other traditionally underserved areas in the academy and kicking open that enrolment door and welcoming people in. And I see that now as being really what I do with my life. As I understand, you've earned both a master's in public health as well as a medical degree. And were you working during all that time as well as a practitioner to earn or were you on scholarship during this? Yeah. So let me be clear. I did the first three years of medicine from 92 to 95. And each year I failed a lot of the courses in medicine and had to do lots of resets. So it took me almost four years to do the first three years of medicine. And then I deferred medicine because it was just incredibly difficult to continue to work. So I was pulling shifts as a night nurse because she got paid more money on Friday, Saturday and Sunday to pay the rent to get through med school. So I deferred medicine, went into public health and never went back and finished medicine. What I did in medicine, however, was I did a PhD in the Faculty of Medicine and it was a demographic and epidemiological PhD, fairly unorthodox one, basically looking at health service delivery. And I finished that in the early 2000s. Excellent. And that's, of course, when I went into UNSW. Yeah, I think it's just very valuable for students to hear about both the alert from leaving the home to discovering nursing, to educating yourself through the paths and the competencies that you've had. And it's quite an incredible story. I want you to know, Lisa, that I'm astonished and impressed by the range of university people that are assisting in this, from the head of strategy to the general counsel, to people who run the different departments at the school. It's incredibly comprehensive. So I'm wondering, did you conceive this and go to the university or did the university find you to head this up? Well, I was asked to put my hat in the ring for a newly vacant role as a Deputy Vice-Chancellor Indigenous Strategy and Services. So I know what a good strategy is and a good strategy for a large organised and complex organisation such as a university is about co-creation. So it's one thing to have a few bright ideas about where I think the university should go, but to exert that much soft power and get everyone onto my way of thinking, it's just, you know, honestly, life's too short. So when I started at the university, we did two things. One is that I promised we'd draw a line under a lot of the old strategies that were in place, some of which didn't work as well as they could have, some of which were terrifically successful and evaluate them. And we called that the unfinished business action plan. And in the Unfinished Business Action Plan, we went out and asked people what worked, what didn't work, what should have been done that wasn't done, etc. We were able to document all of that. And when we were ready to launch One Sydney Many People, we were able to say, now the old is finished and here is a document accounting for that. And so we were able to then move through that process and ask over 4,000 stakeholders at the University of Sydney 
wow. where they think we should go with One Sydney Mini. Well, we didn't even have a name for it then. That was also a name that came out of the consultation. So we asked all these people what they think. We spoke to alumni, to donors, to stakeholders, to our local councillors and politicians. All of our university executive was on board, including the senior leadership team, many heads of school, deans of faculties, students, prospective students, counsellors, you name them. And we spoke to them in many different ways. In some ways, we had barbecues and people would come and speak with us. Others were sent surveys. Others were interviewed one-on-one. I had so many phone calls at night from people who were living abroad who wanted to contribute. And we were able to synthesize everything that was said to it and come up with the product, I guess, that you have there in your hands. And when it was launched, everyone just breathed a sigh of relief and said, I can see my own words in there, which is pretty interesting for 4,000 different people to be able to say, that's exactly what I said, because what that means is that they own it. Yes. It's their strategy. I'm just a person who's got the hard job now of implementing what so many people want and desire. And I think it's one of the most sophisticated and elegant pieces of work that I've had the privilege of being involved in. Can people who are at the universities find one Sydney, many people's on the web? And now some of you listening to guiding principles of this study are community first, university wide, equity, and a boldness in it of being courageous and accountable while at the same time being people centric and aspirational. So for those of you who have in your souls or in your listening hearts, an interest to be guided by respect through these complex issues of co-creation. Lisa has spelled it all out in the report and you can really come to understand the nuance of, and the balancing of that co-creation. And I particularly found page eight on your guiding principles, very instructive because you had to take a very complex world and put it all into this multiple focus. Yes. Did you have a key one or two deputies that helped you do this? Or do you, did you have partners in the university? I don't want to think about that. Yeah, no, these things are never done by an individual. So I had 4,000 partners, but I had some key practitioners that helped get this beastie together. And they included a museum's historian, senior educators, as well as colleagues from other universities. So this was definitely a core group of about 15 people that got this beastie together. And I think if any of those people were different, frankly, that document would be because there was just so much that we put into it. And it was a very non-traditional way of pulling this together. When we did our first layer of synthesis, we were able to write a lot of the feedback on bits of post-its. And in many of their consultations, we had a big whiteboard like the one behind me and we had different colored post-it notes and people chose the color and then they had to put a topic at the top. And so many people wrote about things like people are the university. And one of the ways we interpreted this, and we took it back to them to make sure that we got it right, is that the university, as beautiful as it is with its sandstone buildings and its really historic nature and all of that gorgeousness that many of our campuses are, you remove the campuses, but you still have a university because you've got the people. And one of the most fascinating experiments of recent times was the COVID lockdowns, okay. where we were all of a sudden a university of Zoom or of Teams 
or of online meetings and teaching and practice and learning. And we didn't have our buildings. We had our bedrooms and our studies and our laundries and our backyards. We had our places that weren't the sandstone offices and the big lecture halls. And we still were a university. And I think that really highlighted Eora, people and community very, very strongly because no matter what university you are in the world, you are only so strong because of the people. And if you look after your people, then you look after your university and your future. So that was one of the big things that we got out of it. Excellent. I would like to come to the difficult question of page 14 in your report, where we all know that the University of Sydney is one of the top schools in the world, perhaps in the top 20 in terms of reputation. But in the report, you talk about a benchmark with the group of eight other universities in Australia, where the Aboriginal student in the group of eight is 1.72% of the population, while at the U of Sydney, it is only 0.9. I wanted to see why you think that might happen and how your strategy will help that equilibrate and improve. And I also wanted to simultaneously ask you the question of how the greatness of the study has 3% going to philanthropy. I'm wondering how that fits in too. Is there some mechanism to finance students in need that, you know, need to come to the program that you envision? So could you deal with the fact that the university has got a lower proportion of Aboriginal students and then also talk a little bit about philanthropy? Yeah, there's very few universities in Australia that have reached what we call population parity. And one of the biggest issues with reaching population parity in the university sector is because many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students don't have the opportunity of going to school to leaving certificate level. Many of them are not able to go to any university and many of them certainly don't have the resources to be able to look after themselves at university. So therefore choose other options. And I don't think that's right. I don't think the choice of another option should be down to an inability to be able to finance oneself or to be able to know that you can live with dignity in a college or university-owned education. So with the University of Sydney, we have up until fairly recently a very hard line about who can come into our university, what level of TAR, the final matriculation mark from high school or the international board, the IBE, for students to get in. Over recent years, we have changed that. We've got a Gadigal direct entry program where instead of looking only at a student's final years in high school, we look at the high school career plus their final marks. We look at what their aspirations are. They get to write us story. We get to see what they do in community, what other things they're engaged with, their family structure, what sort of supports they'll have when they get to university. And quite frankly, hand on heart, many of the students that come into university through any of the mechanisms, many of them did not get the high, high, high ATARs that people think they, they get. So we do have enhanced pathways for students. And as a result of that, we've got many structural support around those students to make sure they succeed. Things such as dedicated tutorial assistance. So a student might come into university and they're doing a course and they're a little bit lost with some of the nuances of grammar or they're a little bit lost with some of the nuances of maths that they're studying or chemistry, we can give them a tutor that's been through that same, same course in a more senior year that will assist to understand because it's that real peer support stuff. And we pay them. We pay them to assist them as well. So it's a really good system. The government sponsors that part of the program. 
But other things that we do to ensure success is that we say to students, we want you to be a full-time student, not a full-time worker or a half-time worker and a part-time student. So we've set up a number of dedicated scholarships that are residential. Students can apply for a residential scholarship in one of our colleges. The colleges provide three meals a day, a nice room with a lock on the door and, uh, you know, quite a structured living process, lots of rules and, you know, guidelines and also additional tutorialship in an environment where everyone's studying, right? Not mixed households with people that are out working or doing apprenticeship, but people who are all studying. And that's starting to really pay benefits. We set up a program like that in my previous university, and we found that every single student for a three-year cohort got through their programs of study, not one failed. That's an excellent example of the full-time student and the residential setting allowing someone to reinvent themselves that might not have been on a path, might have been on a different destiny, but you're giving them a chance to discover themselves and make themselves of service to society. And I think that others are seeing the need for the university pathway for those who are adept at it. And then there's other kinds of natural intelligence or adaptive intelligence and the importance of apprenticeship that has been kind of lost along the way. And I think that we are reconsidering in order to prepare people for the changing job force. It it takes a lot of different kinds of aptitudes. But I want to go back to that issue, just like practically, how do you, in terms of ensuring health outcomes for Indigenous communities, how do you engage with Indigenous communities? You very bravely left home at 14, and so it was a matter of escape. But for those who aren't escaping, for those who stay and those who leave, what are other ways of engaging with Indigenous communities? How is that disparity? How are you closing the gap? And why do you identify the, the reasons for that gap? With healthcare or the educational gap, there's a number of quite astonishing statistics that you know too well. So how do we close that gap and equal access? All right. So I think most of your listeners will recognize education is the leveler. The greatest improvement of health across generations is education. And so if you've got someone who's got an education, whether that's a high school education, where they left high school being able to read and write and participate in the dominant society and be connected to their culture, no matter what culture that is, they tend to make different choices about their health. They have a different way of holding themselves through their lives. What university provides, along with technical training and apprenticeships and any kind of vocational training, is that it gives people a professional practice. And again, that professional practice or that education changes their ability to be able to earn, to have agency, to be able to provide for others, and transforms them and their family in just one generation. And the transformational effect of a university education or a vocational education should never, ever be underestimated. And what worries me around the world is that we're moving that ability for people to have that sort of transformational educational experience further away from the people who could do it most into those who can afford it. And I think there is something fundamentally wrong. Again, I'll go back to that first in family thing. If, you know, you ask people first in family, often when they put their hand up, you're actually not saying, do you come from a disadvantaged population or do you live in a low SES postcode or zip code? There's all these reasons why they work their hand up for being first in family. And often, often it's for those reasons. We know that as first in family, you are deeply courageous. You are incredibly brave and you deserve a chance not just to get through university, but because of your persistence and your courage, 
you deserve a chance at a really cool internship or a really cool straight out of university opportunity because you've done it harder than a lot of these other ones that have always had the conversations around the dining room table about, you know, dad being a lawyer or mum being a business executive or Arnie being a doctor or these other things, you know, it really changes the mindset. And so I think that's a persistent and important thing for people to think about in their own experience. I have absolutely no doubt if people go into their workplace tomorrow and say to their colleague, are you first in family to uni? You know, you might be surprised at the response. And I'm always surprised at the response of how many people quietly tell me that they are also like me. But I think the other thing that's important to note is that often people leave school early, they go off and have families and all the rest of it. And what happens is that they don't get a chance to get to uni straight from school. That's the best time to go to uni, quite frankly, is straight from school. But that's not always the way. People have community obligations and other things. So us, like many others, have got mature age entry programs where people can come and do block release programs. They can do graduate diplomas. They can have their experience and their certifications and their vocational training recognised as prior learning to be able to do advanced degrees at university. Those students also have very special needs, particularly around some of that fundamental stuff you learn in first and second year undergraduate degrees that they may not have. And so we're very fortunate at the university. We've been able to put those sorts of resources around people and again, pack it up so that they've got every opportunity of achieving the degrees that they're enrolled in. Throughout life, we encounter people who are exceptional, almost like movies that have made their life move beyond initial trauma into a great productivity. In the case of Lisa Pulver, we find a person who was forced to remove herself from her home and the trauma of home by age 14. But the true story is how she achieves a perspective of the 60,000 years of Aboriginal people who live on the land of Australia. And that you'll hear the strength of her character and the courage by which she speaks to young people and says, for reasons you will soon hear. I'm wondering about that healthcare gap because I've done a number of interviews with Indigenous communities in North and South America. And some have spoke to me about, say, during COVID, like in North America and probably also in South America, Indigenous communities were one of the most, I think in North America, the most heavily impacted. And I don't know exactly why then. So we spoke to people who had like a translating the information into different languages because that was really important. The information wasn't there. And also, for very valid reasons, historically, Indigenous communities had, you know, distrusted certain, you know, maybe they had gone through sterilization projects or other various ways that Indigenous communities had been abused by people coming from the outside and telling them things. So I'm just wondering, what's for you the importance of embracing Indigenous language as part of these educational initiatives and also for transmitting some of that important healthcare knowledge to groups who might not have it and be also resistant to it? Yes. I mean, COVID's a really good example, isn't it? We had proportionately much higher strike rate COVID in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities. Uh, um, and you were right on the money there with some of the reasons for that, an inherent mistrust of the government and of the systems. There are also other barriers to people getting care. Just because you have a shiny big hospital built next door to a community, it doesn't mean people go to that shiny big hospital. 
Often they don't see people that look like themselves in the hospital, so they won't go. They will feel uncomfortable with that. People often don't like going to hospitals because they feel as though they'll be left on a trolley for four hours longer than anyone else. And as many would say, well, that's just a perception. Well, actually, unfortunately, the evidence shows that that perception is accurate, that it certainly does happen even in this day and age. A lot of people found it very difficult to get themselves vaccinated. So particularly if they had to travel in, there wasn't always a vaccination nurse on duty. And if you're driving for six hours to get your vaccine. Many of the vaccines available here in Australia require the cold chain. And of course, that can be a little bit tricky. You can get frozen ice treats into communities nice and easily. But when you try and get something in in the fruit, you know, in a cold chain situation like a medicine, then that becomes incredibly difficult. Who knows why? So a lot of people weren't able to get their jabs or to have the number of jabs to get up to a point of being considered to be fully vaccinated. Many communities are around cross-border regions, different borders, different jurisdictions had different rules. There was one hysterical story, honestly, it was just terrible, where people got their first round of jabs and they were ready for their second round of jabs. The borders had changed the rules. The people who went to their nearest vaccination centre could not cross the border because they hadn't had their second jab. They couldn't get their second jab until they crossed the border, right? Um, This is nuts. This is Australia, one of the world's wealthiest nations. Now, I know it happened over there in your way too because I'm on the International Group of Indigenous Health Measurement and we heard the stories from your one as well. So, you know, we... Uh, in a crazy world where the rights of Indigenous people and the health of Indigenous people is nowhere near as important as the rights and health of others. And that is a reality that we really have to understand, unpack and say, is that good enough? And frankly, it ain't. So yeah, that was a really big deal. And then of course, when people get sick with COVID, you know, there was a time when you had to buy tests or, you know, people didn't have a car to sit in to get a PCR test. And if you did take the only car in the family, then, you know, something else happened and people need to go somewhere. It was just fraught. It was fine for people who have all of those resources at hand, but got a growing number of people who are in a degree of poverty where these sorts of resources that the government expected us to have during COVID are just simply not there. So Yeah, we had massive mortality and we're now looking at the data of excess deaths and you're looking at it in America as well and Canada certainly. And I think we're just going to be terribly unsurprised and rather sad that what the data will tell us is that COVID affected and the subsequent sequelae of that affected Aboriginal and First Nations people and Indigenous people far more than the other population that shares the various continents. Indeed, it really just brings those inequities to light. And I was having a conversation with one of your fellow countrywomen, Joelle Gerges, who was one of the lead authors of the latest IPCC report. And she told me, and I hadn't realized that in Australia, you have the most biodiversity of any country. And so it makes it me doubly sad, you know, you've had recently the Black Summer with the terrible fires. And then, of course, currently with the heat wave and what this will lead to, you know, Tell us how you're faring and how this affects Indigenous communities and your community there. So I'll go back to One Sydney Many People because one of the four pillars is about Pumalwan, the environment. And it is critical that for our mob, we come from the land and when we go back to the land, the land is so important. It has never been seeded or sold. It is such a precious resource. And 
it's fascinating work, as I said earlier on the podcast, with a, with a classical historian. And we've had many a conversation and back in antiquity, people recognize the value of land. They recognize that if you damage the land, you won't be able to grow your crops. If you pollute the waters, you won't be able to drink or to bathe and be refreshed and healthy and clean. And somehow the industrial world kind of lost sight of that, right? Really, really lost sight of that. And the diversity of the ecology has evolved over billions of years to provide this beautiful thing called balance. And what we are now is a world profoundly out of balance in every part of it. And the pillaging and absolute mass slaughter of anything that is of the land or comes out of the land in the modern parlance is something that I think that I know we will not be remembered well for in history. We are currently sitting in a very wishy part of history where at the moment we've got koalas crossing the roads in rather urbanised environments because we've completely broken their link to be able to eat and they're starving. They're the ones that survived the fires. You know, we are at the moment on the point of the end of extinction of so many species in Australia that it just makes your heart break if you think about it too closely. That biodiversity was part of the unique balance in our world. And you look at your continents and where you live as well, you see exactly the same thing. Yet at the same time, we're getting pressured strongly to be able to dig up more pristine land and pollute water sources for this thing called gas or this thing called coal, these fossil fuels that are going out of favour and won't be around in you know, 30, 40, 50 years because we would have grown a brain by then and done something quite different to resource our hungry needs of energy. But when you look at the cost of that, our world is going to take millennia to regenerate again. And it's going to take a real concerted effort for us to be careful about feral species, to be careful about weeds, about monocultures, to recognise that if we don't have diversity in our biosphere, we have got absolutely no chance of surviving. I'll put it in a slightly different way. Aboriginal people have been on this land for at least 60,000 years. Through Some will say it's the oldest continuing culture on the planet. People have been here in the most, at the driest continent on earth, right? In some of the most extreme conditions on earth through all that time and have survived and not just survived, but thrived. And over the last 230 years, the most catastrophic events have occurred to this land because people didn't listen to ancient Aboriginal cultures and languages and knowledges. And I don't mean ancient in that they'll practice only, you know, millennia ago, they'll practice all the way up to now. And because people haven't been listening to that, these catastrophes have been happening. And I would bet that there is all of that knowledge where you live as well and where all of your listeners are living as well. So my question to you is, if people were able to look after this place for 60,000 years and thrive, what have we done? to ensure that we do have a healthy, fit world for the next 60,000 years. And I don't think we can see beyond 100, to be honest. And I think we should really get on with getting it right. And my job as an educator, I'm doing my bit, and I know lots of others are doing their bit. But how do we really stand in history as being the generation, no matter what our brains, no matter what our education, no matter what our resources and our inventiveness are, couldn't deal 
with what we have faced now, and that's our own extinction. Lisa, what I wish to do is thank you for the passionate challenge to think past the next hundred years. And what I find in looking at your work and hearing you is that you've moved beyond trauma and also beyond blame into a realm of creative productivity that can be an important lesson for this new generation that will help us see through. And I, I want to thank you so much for the work you've done through the years. Thank you. What you say is so important. We can't let this period of unrestrained capitalism, which is really extractivism, continue because we can't ignore it anymore. We're facing our own extinction. And I've always been just so moved by this indigenous philosophy that indigenous peoples think forward to the generations ahead, seven generations. And I think it's something that we've forgotten and that we have to think about. It's not just what we take today, not what we do today and own and possess, but we think about how it will affect those generations in the future. So Lisa, as you think about the future education, the importance of your heritage and, and passing that on to the future generations, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? The first thing I want to say to young people is, I'm sorry, we have left you with so much unfinished business. We have left you with an environment that has been degraded before our eyes with our consent for at least two generations, probably since the beginning of the industrial age. We've not looked after the planet for you. We now expect you to perform some sort of miracles and solve the problems that we and our ancestors, your ancestors, created. And I'm super sorry for that. The other thing I'm super sorry is that we haven't concluded some of the unfinished business of our nations. We've all been part of a nation, a Commonwealth here in Australia, or your organisation and your country where you're from, where we have not treated First Nations knowledges with the profound respect that we should. And although I am an Aboriginal woman, I also have ancestry from the colonizers, from the invaders, from the massacrists, from the rapists. And the recognition of that in my genes is also something that many of you have. But ultimately, I'm saying sorry also because we have not recognized how important First Nations culture is, not only to First Nations people, but to all people. When people came and invaded this country, they set a brand new table under their terms. They didn't invite us to the table. They barely gave us the scraps. And more often than not, rape, killed, incarcerated us, put us away. This is not a unique story around the world. And I think it's time that we had a reckoning around the world of how it is we all now live in different places to our ancestries, how it all now is that we all belong, how we all now have to recognise what sorry truly means, to have the reckoning, to reconcile, because the problems we have before us are going to need us all, all of our thought processes, all of our cultures, and most importantly, First Nations cultures, to be at the forefront of solving the biggest, challenging, and trickiest questions that we've ever faced as humanity. That's what I want to leave, that my sincerest apologies for passing this on to you. And if there's anything us old people can do to help, I await your guidance. Mm. That's so beautiful. I mean, I can hear your passion alongside your humility. And indeed, it's for all of us to join in one voice. It's a collective effort. So thank you, Lisa Jackson Pulver, for your contributions to Australian society, to embrace one Sydney, many peoples, and your commitment to improving access to healthcare for Aboriginal people, transmitting knowledge, honoring your ancestors, and nurturing future generations.
Thank you for adding your voice to Business and Society and One Planet Podcast. Thank you. I'm honored. Lisa, thank you. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.